Have you ever punched a punching bag? No. Never? No. Have you ever had the impulse to punch a punching bag? Do you feel like that's something you're missing? I've never really had the impulse to punch anything. Like, when I get overwhelmingly upset, I sometimes will pound my desk in a fit of joy. Yeah. Like, yeah, if my code breaks, like, in production on the day of a deploy of new code and it worked everywhere else and my logical understanding of the universe is being challenged and there are bosses like breathing over my shoulder and coworkers who need to feel assured that I know what I'm doing and it's still not fucking running, then I will pound on my table. The nice thing about working remotely is that I can, I can pound in reality instead of having to, you know, do it mentally in the office. Right. That's fair. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, you're not listening. You're scrolling through some items on your computer. Do you have some outstanding Amazon order or something? I was listening. I've also, have you ever been punched? I, I've been slapped. I was slapped in the schoolyard one time in grade six. By a dude? Yeah, by a dude. Right in front of the, the, the teacher's lounge. Was it by a teacher? Uh, no, no, no. It was a Catholic school, but luckily it wasn't a Catholic teacher who struck me. Did you deserve it? I that's that's dubious. Uh, um, I was challenging like four square rules, and then a classmate of mine who I still know today and is actually a good person um, threw the, like a, the ball at my chest, like a basketball at my chest. So I ran up and I slapped him, and then his glasses like flew across the playground, and then somebody absentmindedly stepped on them. And upon realizing that his gra- glasses were crushed. He, like, smacked me in the face. It's funny that I just realized, as a wheelie, you can age someone based on your ability to hit them in the face. What do you mean? Because you sit, and their face level is, like, hand level for a while. Uh But then eventually they... Like, you wouldn't be able to reach your friend's faces now to slap them. No, but I could reach their balls. That's true, but that's for other activities. Well, I mean, you know, neither here nor there. I, I'm going to feel fraudulent upon saying the following, but at the time I was punched in the face, I was actually standing in a my walker. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, yeah. no, that's on me for assuming you were disabled. I'm sorry <laughs> to assume your disability there. <laughs> yeah, you right. make that assumption a lot, Tony. Yeah, I'm sorry. I apologize. In the future, I'm going to assume that you're standing unless told otherwise. <laughs> like, even when I'm sitting? Yeah. Oh, dear. Like, you'll be like, I went to bed, and I was like, were you lying down? <laughs> <laughs> Let me show you. I want to show you something that I just received in the mail. And I, I am excited to show you what it looks like. In the email or the snail mail? In the snail mail. It's a physical thing. Okay, show me now. Tell me what you, before reading the title, look at the blue thing and tell me what you think this is. Oh dear, it looks like some kind of grabber. Yeah, try to describe it. How would you describe this thing? I have no idea. It looks like a piece of dental equipment. Pretend you're describing it to a blind person. (laughs) Okay, so what I'm looking at looks like a, a cup holder designed for a shot glass. Like it's like, oh, yeah, it's a, it's this like piece of blue plastic with like these two claw, like translucent plastic prongs sticking out of the side of it. 
Yeah. And it looks like you can latch the blue plastic to your chair and then you can rest a shot glass like in the in the hooks. Right. Okay. Or it looks like a weird piece of dental equipment that you've seen in the dentist's office, but they, they've never taken it off the shelf to use on your face. Anything else? Uh, am I supposed to see something sexual in it? I am not. Do you have an idea? Like, have you already been crying? Do you know what this is for real? No, it doesn't look like anything I've ever seen before. Right. It could be maybe like a like a women's sex toy, maybe. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, it kind of looks like a speculum a little bit. I don't know what that is. Remember our clockwork orange where they put those things in their eyeballs to hold? Oh. But there, there's like vaginal ones of those that, so that a gynecologist can get in there. Interesting. Did you study gynecology at some point? It was a passion of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I was just a hobbyist gynecologist. <laughs> <laughs> it seems weird that the word guy is in the word gynecologist gynecologist <laughs> yeah like really that's true we <laughs> should change the name all right so let me tell you what this thing is okay sure this is called a therabyte oh and you know where this is going yeah th- thera for therapy and bite for opening your mouth so those white prongs there uh-huh i'm supposed to put in my mouth uh-huh. And then you squeeze the blue thing and it stretches my jaw open, like forces it open. Oh my God. They're going to like stick the muzzle of a gun in there and ask you for your life savings once they pry your mouth open. I haven't tried it yet. I just got it today and uh-huh. I have physio tomorrow morning. Who, like, this was prescribed to you by a therapist? So this is prescribed to me and. Uh, you know, obviously I've been trying the popsicle sticks that hasn't really been, hasn't really been giving me what I've been hoping. It's definitely helping a bit, but I want it to go quicker, right? I want, I want to see real progress and I want measurable objective progress. You know, it's funny and I hate to keep bringing this up over and over, but for most people, if you took the, like those popsicle sticks and put uh malt fudge on them you know like people would happily put all kinds of popsicle sticks in their mouth uh-huh. but for you they'd have to put some sort of like like greek chicken with tzatziki sauce on it it would have to be like yeah well, like some slovaki yeah yeah like maybe you should ask your therapist to put slovaki on your therapy popsicle sticks i should yeah i remember <laughs> when i was a kid one of my brothers would chew his nails to the point where it was like, you know, unhealthy, disgusting, like chew them right down really, really short. And so to mitigate it, my family would put cayenne pepper on his fingers because chewing it would be so spicy and he wouldn't be able to handle it. And I was always like, that sounds amazing. (laughs) I want to just have a a little bit of free cayenne pepper. (laughs) So you develop a nail-biting habit out of an addiction to cayenne pepper? I remember saying to my mom when she was doing it, I was like, can I just have a spoonful of cayenne pepper? (laughs) And she was like, no, you absolutely can't. And I was like, so you're saying the only way for me to get cayenne pepper right now is to start chewing my nails? So in your rebellious phase of like uh, 
adolescence, did you just consume obnoxious amounts of pepper? Yeah, I was like, like we would go to a restaurant and I'd be like, what's the hottest sauce you have? <laughs> yeah. And then they'd be like, oh, we have this, you know, suicide, whatever. <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, okay, load me up with that. And everyone at the table was like, oh, here we go. And the waiter would be like, you don't want it. It's too hot. <laughs> and I was like, give me double what you were going to give me before you said that. And then you'd pound the table and like look your parents directly in the eye. Yeah. Yeah. This is, it's either this or I start biting my nails. So this therabyte thing. Uh huh. I don't know how to feel. Like I expect it's going to hurt a lot, right? Well, you can always tell them to stop, but like somehow by blinking three times, I guess. But I think I want it to hurt. <laughs> right? Are you okay, Tony? Because if, if it doesn't hurt, Am I, you know, am I actually making progress? Well, I mean, you're not, you're no stranger to therapy. You know when it hurts too much. I'm excited about it. You're excited about hurting? Did I tell you how much this thing cost? Uh, can I guess? Sure. $200. Remember, it's a medical device. Okay. Probably. Uh, okay, so $1,500. $500. Wow. I mean, yeah. that's, that's still like way, way, way too much. I remember I sent it to my insurance for work yeah. and I asked them to pay for it. And they were like, um, you can submit <laughs> it, but I don't know if we'll pay for it. So I submitted it and then right away it got rejected. And I, I called them just to see if I could like appeal it or something. Yeah. And I was like, I have a prescription for this. You know, if that helps, it's a thing. And they're like, I remember the woman on the phone was like, we don't cover the... Therapy, therabyte, therabyte, jaw motion. Re- like they were, I felt, it felt a bit uncomfortable because she was basically, I don't know. It doesn't seem like a fun job to just be like, sorry, we can't help Did you. she seem regretful that she was saying no to you or incredulous that you were asking for coverage? Mm, no, I think it's just, you probably just become numb to it as an insurance adjustment claims person. Yeah, because 90% of anything that comes out of your mouth is bad news for people. But yeah, so uh, I'll keep you posted on this therapy. Maybe you'll notice a difference in my speech. That's interesting. I Yeah, okay, so you're excited to hurt. No, I'm, I'm excited to progress. Mm, that's a good attitude. I will go through the pain if I feel like there is a reward. Right. I'm a big baby when it comes to pain that doesn't feel necessary. But I can tolerate pain if I know it will benefit me. Like, I remember when I broke my ankle, I was like just toughing it out for the first day or two, making sure people were being really careful. Did you, like every time you um, moved, did you gristle like an action hero that just survived a firefight? Yeah. Uh, uh, And then when they, when I decided to go get it checked, I x-rayed it and they were like, yeah, it's broken. And then immediately I remember a big shift. I was like, ah, ah, it's broken. Oh, careful, it's broken. And it, it was like the same pain, but in my head it was broken. So I was like a big baby about it. I was like, I have a broken leg. Yeah, I get nerve pain in my back. Like, cause my, my back on my right side will tweak and then it will feel like my right side is like quite inflamed, but it always happens right after I bike. 
And so I know it's like just my posture on yeah. the bike. But if I get into my head a little bit too much about it, I'll start thinking like, what if it's like internal bleeding or what if some, I did some crazy shit. What if I pedaled too hard, which is ridiculous. Cause it's like the low, the lowest possible resistance on a stationary bike in my bedroom. Like I'm not pushing myself too hard. And then I'll just like, my imagination can run wild if my headspace is not correct, you know? So you, you need to know what the pain comes from. Yeah. I need to know that it's not something worse. Otherwise my imagination will just like not work in my favor. Yeah. I'm the exact same way because it's just like, yeah, I don't know. Again, I think it's just knowing that the pain is worth something. That after you come away from the pain, you will be in some way stronger or better or wiser. Yeah. Or able to open your mouth more. Yeah, that's why the pain of a hangover is the worst, because you have nothing but yourself to blame. It's just regret. It is regret, yeah. It's regret, and it lives in your forehead. I actually feel the same amount of regret when I go to bed too late, and then I wake up in the morning, and I'm like, it wasn't worth it. Like, I I didn't need to stay at the party an extra 45 minutes, meaning that it would take... I'd miss my bus and I'd have to cab and all this other stuff. Like I didn't get that much out of those 45 minutes that I had to go through all of these other steps, go to bed an hour and a half later than I was going to and be 40% more tired than I wanted to be. Mm. Can you give me some more examples of worthwhile pain? That's a good question. I think it's mostly like physical progression, like, like therapy like the dogs, Physio. like delayed muscle soreness from working on something. Yeah. Yeah. What about heartache? That's a good one. Sometimes, sometimes I regret putting myself out there when I knew that it was like going to go in the direction as it did. But I'm usually pretty good about forcing myself into the silver lining. In general, though, I, I'm more like, you know, it was better to have gone through it and felt this way than to just out of fear of this pain not put myself through any of that in the first place cool you yeah that's a question i constantly ask myself i do not have a good answer like you don't know if heartache is worth it yeah i i don't know do you feel like that question makes you afraid to put yourself out there uh for sure yeah yeah but do you ever feel rewarded for it? Like, even if it's not in love or relationships, putting yourself on a limb, even if it's just like professionally, and then you get rewarded for it, does it never, does that feedback loop ever register for you where you're like, oh, this is a worthwhile pain? Well, the problem with like emotional pain of that nature is that it is not static and it is not predictable. But isn't that also the the good side of it? Like, because you know it's not going to last forever, you can just kind of bear through it. Well, I mean, yeah. So you're just saying like time heals all wounds and whatnot. It does. And I generally subscribe to that, but I'm also somebody who has quite a vivid memory for the things that I care about. And so if I want to relive like any memory to which I associate a strong emotion, I can. And so that bites me in the ass quite a bit. When you relive a memory 
from a past that took a dark turn and left you feeling something negative. I wouldn't say it's a dark turn, but more like a pathos. Okay. But can you separate the two things? Like, can you be thankful for having a good memory or does it just dredge up all of the ending? Well, it's harder to, it's hard to stay in the present because it's easy for me to make the present moment feel like the memory. Does that make sense? Yeah, but isn't that what you're trying to do? Well, you're trying to reflect on something in order to gain perspective or to let it go, but I'm not very good at that. What, letting it go or gaining perspective? <laughs> letting it go. Are you good at gaining perspective? I don't know. I would say for the most part I am, but if I'm very close to the incident, maybe not. Like, you know, right. like I, I can, uh, if I have, it's hard, that's a hard This is a hard discussion to talk about at a high level. It's easier to to see your whole side of the story and just rationalize everything you did because you saw and felt everything yourself. Mm -hmm. Even if you were part of it, but you're trying to think of their experience Mm -hmm. and put yourself into their shoes, it's hard because you can't, you just can't know everything that they were going through. You can try and you can guess and you can even sometimes take what they tell you, but you don't know if they meant it or it was their actual truth at the time. Like, it's an impossible exercise. It is, yeah. It's better to move on in other ways. I think it's good to remember the things and like think about what was good about them because then you can remember what good you wanted out of it, but only if you don't go there and immediately start thinking about all the bad parts that ended it or whatever. Yeah. The best way I can surmise it, like effectively and without talking about it for too long, you know, like I'm grateful, but also sad. Yeah. I think that's fair. I don't think you should expect yourself to not be either of those things. Yeah. As long as you don't relish in either of those either, I think. For sure. Which is the hard part, obviously. So yeah, so heartache is good pain. <laughs> yeah, I think it is, honestly. It's like, you know, it's it's going to be hard to have more of this conversation without just like seemingly placating like platitudes and inspirational, motivational posters. Mm-hmm. But, or turning this into a sequel to Hitch with Will Smith and yeah, Kevin James. Which I've never seen. Yeah, don't watch that movie. Yeah. Okay. Are you ready to go back to work? Uh, no. Have you polished up your resume? Um, I've thought about it. That's a good first step. Yep. It's a, it's a difficult, well, firstly, it's a difficult thing to talk around because I don't want to say anything negative about my workplace, but I also don't want to insinuate that I would like to leave my workplace. I think there's nothing wrong with looking for the future opportunities and realizing your potential might be beyond where you are. But I think it goes beyond like, like a kind of um, a need to grow and progress professionally. And it's like, even like ideologically, like however you feel about COVID and whether people should have the right to work from home. I think there's like a larger conversation about work-life balance and what work actually is and people's relationship to it and how, and how, how they should see themselves relative to their work. And if you get the sense that your superiors just want things to return to the way things were, 
that feels so disappointing. And I, I just don't want to go down that road because I, because I lived that life for five years before the pandemic and I could live it indefinitely afterwards. And so it does feel like there needs to be a change. And if my workplace can't be that agent of change, then that means that I need to take some responsibility and find it elsewhere. Jamie, agent of change. I dig it. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah, of course. I, people can accuse, say it's like a generational thing where, you know, uh, millennials can't seem to stay in a job because they are too obsessed with finding meaning or making an impact or something. And so they're constantly dissatisfied and restless in a professional manner. I don't think that's what it is. I can relate to that though. I always want to know, like, can I do more? Am I doing enough? Well, of course. And those are important motivational questions to ask yourself throughout the course of your career so that you can try to do a good job and not burn out or stay passionate. Mm -hmm. It feels like an opportunity to reevaluate our relationship with work and a failure to do so would just mean that my current like environment is going to remain static in a lot of disappointing ways. And if I accept that, then I'm doing myself a disservice because honestly, like working from home is so liberating in so many different ways. Like I, I can plan my exercise during my work day such that I am still able to do my job, but I can multitask. And if I need to lie down at some point because of discomfort or pain or, or whatever, orthopedic issues, I can like, um, it's easier to go to uh, appointments. It's easier to arrange my meals. It's so much easier to do everything. And maybe that ease isn't the best thing for me overall, but it's still fantastic. And it's still a degree of freedom that like once you've, once you've become accustomed to it, you kind of don't want to let it go. And I, I can see how some people would argue like, oh, you're being a spoiled brat. Like for my job, I have to go into the workplace and I have to yada, 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 yada. But the fact of the matter is like, I feel like my disability is even less of a factor when I'm able to work remotely. Yeah, of course. And like, I, I want to fucking pursue that everywhere I fucking can. And, and I, if people are going to tell me that I'm uh, not being a good worker or whatever, I'm entitled and they can fuck off. Has somebody said that to you or are you just projecting? No, I, I could be projecting, but that is sort of the general vibe. There's a whole bunch of shoulds surrounding return to the workplace and I don't subscribe to them. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Like it's insane how how much time you spend navigating your own disability mm-hmm. when you have to go to work versus actually working. And any reasonable employer, I think, would adopt that because even if you're just thinking about it from the bottom line, you're going to be more productive because you have more mental overhead to spend on your work rather yeah. than like, can I get to work on time? What do I need to wear to get outside? Am I going to have to wait for my bus? How long is it going to take? Is someone going to be there to help me put my jacket on or take my jacket off? What if I have to go to the bathroom? 
Is my chair charged enough? If I get uncomfortable, what do I do? How long does it take me to make a meal or heat up a meal? Do I have to prep a meal? Is the table going to be accessible? Is my desk going to be accessible? Mm -hmm. Is there going to be the things I need to be able to control my computer? Is my attendant going to be there if I need to go to the bathroom? Can I make the meeting? Exactly. Yeah. Can I make my appointments throughout the day? And then all of that mental overhead gets wasted on non-work. Yeah. It's like, I remember in Ottawa, like going to Canada Post to be uh, a data entry monkey for Accenture, like half my spoons at least were devoted to making sure that my fucking semi-formal business shirt was tucked into my pants and just getting to the site. Have we talked about the spoons analogy before? I, I, we've alluded to it before, and uh, Maggie Widom has referred us to it as well. But I don't know if we've actually formally defined it during an episode. Yeah, so the spoons analogy, I forget where it originated. From some, I think, disability writer or advocate or something, basically tried to equate the energy that somebody has in a day as spoons. Not really sure why they chose spoons, to be honest. It really seems like it could have been anything, but spoons are like a tangible item that we all understand, we all can relate to. And you wake up and you have X number of spoons. Any <laughs> activity you do, you spend spoons. It's like energy currency. Yep. And so, you know, for the average person, Maybe putting a shirt on is a spoon. For a disabled person who has to put their own shirt on, maybe it's three spoons or four spoons. So already out of the gate, you've just got your shirt on and you have less energy than your able-bodied counterpart. And of course, within able-bodied people, for some people, it takes more energy than others. If you have to plan your outfit, maybe that's a spoon. If you wear the same shirt every day, less spoons maybe. But the idea is, in general, a person with a physical disability spends more spoons doing things that the average able-bodied person doesn't need to consider in their energy output. Mm -hmm. And so you can get 45 minutes into your day and already feel like you've spent or even wasted a bunch of your energy on tasks that to you don't feel that productive. Right. Or to some general societal definition of productivity is not productive. Yeah. Sometimes I feel productive having an attendant that has time to open a box and like check my mail for me. And yeah. to think about managing all that stuff, sometimes I take pride in it because it's like a fun, I don't know, puzzle to figure out and put all the pieces together. But other times I'm just like, I'd rather just sit in front of my TV and be a potato or or do this stuff myself because I think it would take less or fewer spoons to do it myself because I wouldn't have to think about it, prepare for it, prepare how to ask for it, prepare how to explain what it is I want, and then go through that whole process with someone else. And I think you can relate to that in the same way because, you know, for you... Transferring to your chair takes way more spoons 
than the average person who just gets out of bed in the morning. Oh yeah. For me, like the whole ritual of getting up and showering and getting my shoes on, making sure I eat something and I have my first coffee of the day, that whole ritual, if I have to do it 100% by myself is, is just horrendous. And like, let's say you wake up in the morning with 20 spoons. How many spoons do you think you have by the time you're at your desk working from home? Uh, 18, maybe 19. Okay. I, sometimes I don't have to do much of anything except transfer from my bed to my chair and just go to the garage. Okay. Now you're working in the office. Like 13, 14 spoons for the day. Yeah. And that's, again, if an employer is thinking about that, that's five to six more spoons that they would have otherwise been able to use for you to spend on the work that they're paying you to do. Yeah. Do you ever think about um, how much like clerical attendant help we would need if we were like IT professionals before the internet boom, like before everything like was saved in Gmail or Jira or any kind of software based tool? And so you, you never like nowadays, I never have to take notes. I never really carry paper with me. I have a couple doodles and a few mental maps written out on paper at my desk at work. And I keep a note book beside me to jot down like pseudocode that I think of, but don't don't actually want to create or turn into something real quite yet. But generally speaking, like my memory and my brain is imprinted like throughout my Gmail and my my uh, Jira tasks. And it's all in software. And I think my goodness, if I were not born in this era, I could not function in the workplace. <laughs> I just like remember in um, primary school and high school, like uh, so much of my daily allotment for homework went toward just putting papers in my binders and making sure that yeah. my stuff wasn't in absolute disarray. Because if I let it go for even one day, I would get like scattered CP brain and my 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 stuff would just implode. I remember there was a very specific kind of binder that I could open. Like I could get my finger into the three ring loop and then like get my thumb onto the opening tab, push hard enough, to make it pop open. And then I was able to like load my papers and organize myself. And then I remember other binders or on days where my hand was a bit weaker, not being able to open it and then shoving papers into this binder, but not into the rings. Even just being able to do that versus not being able to do that made me feel more or less connected to the work and to the school into the course uh-huh. and it so much drive dr- drove my personality but also my productivity mm-hmm. yeah because the minute you can't do it like you feel excluded from it and then your your sense of obligation and motive motivation is immediately muted yeah it's also very discouraging when you can't do something as simple as open your binder to put your papers in Mm-hmm. I remember having to look at the clock and it would be like 10 minutes to the end of the period. And that's when I would have to start putting my papers away. Cause, and I just checked out for the last five minutes of class because I'm just focused on physically organizing my binders. 
in primary school, did you have to fight to get like a keyboard to take notes? Or were people often quite receptive to you using a computer? I don't think I started using a keyboard until late elementary school, maybe early high school. Okay, so I would have been grade seven, I believe, grade seven and eight. And there were some teachers that insisted that I write my notes with a pen and paper. Yeah. And I I was always so resentful of that. Well, for me, it was also, I liked math and science. And you can't really type a lot of those notes. That's true. Well, you can, but it just takes, it's easier to just write it. Yeah, the markup for like creating uh, legible math notes in a software program is always a pain in the ass. Yeah, and then you're falling behind. And I remember when I went to university, I kind of, because through high school, I was sort of struggling physically for the last few years. But I didn't want to admit to myself that I was struggling because I didn't want to look more disabled by bringing a laptop to class when I was carrying a binder a few weeks before and everyone else was carrying binders. Even though, obviously, nobody would have even batted an eye. Was there a point at which you decided that you no longer cared about how disabled you looked? Or is that always something that sort of is with you? I I still care. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to go away, but I also don't know if I want it to go away. Oh, oh well, of course. Yeah. Because it's another form of motivation. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it's, it almost feels like letting myself go. Right. Yeah. Like a lot of able-bodied people think of letting themselves go as like eating too many snacks, yeah. like after 6 p.m. To me, it's like not putting pants on. <laughs> Yeah. It's like not going through the paces with a new attendant just to like make sure my pants are up high enough in the back. So if you have a disabled friend over and they're like in all sweats and they look like they are dressed by someone else, do you think less of them? A disabled person? Yeah. No, I don't think less of them. I know that depends on context, but like, are there people who can trigger you if you know that they can do better, but they don't? I don't think so. Because I can't hold other people to the same standard that I hold myself. Right. But sometimes I look at that and I'm like, oh, that's why I have to wear pants. Because I don't think I would look good wearing that outfit. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Like maybe it's working for them. But if I wore sweatpants like that out, I just wouldn't feel confident. Yeah. And like I need confidence in order to go to shoppers and get someone to get my prescription and put it in my backpack. Cause that's like a bunch of social interaction that I have to be prepared for. And if I feel like I'm letting myself go, mm-hmm. then I won't feel, I don't know if the word is entitled, but I won't feel as worthy. Right. Worthy. That's yeah, exactly. And the psychologist listening to this would have a heyday. Maybe. That whole idea of being worthy of other people's assistance by pulling your weight is really interesting. Well, because otherwise it feels like I'm abusing people. Like if I don't, if I'm asking someone to do more than it feels like I can do myself, like I have, it has to, for me, feel like the amount of work I put into my daily life Uh is equal to or even more than 
the amount that I ask of other people to do for me. Yeah, that makes total sense. You that is the general dynamics of all human beings. Ideally, that whoever you are close to, what you share with them is reciprocal. It definitely depends on who it's with. Like certain people are more comfortable with to just be a, a potato that day. Yeah, but that's because they that's because they they see you as more than a potato in other dimensions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel that though? Do you ever feel like you haven't earned the right to ask for certain kinds of help? Oh, that's a strange question. I I think my my entitlement or my earning of other people's care has been somewhat distorted by wh- what my parents think I should be able to do for myself. Distorted is in inflated or deflated? Well, that's hard to say. It's <laughs> the the bar is higher living with my parents than living in an attendant care program. Really? Oh, for sure. But but we've talked about this before. My parents are or were chronically afraid that I would not be able to take care of myself. So you have like a reputation to uphold. Yeah. So every time I ask them for assistance, that like ask is weighted by their suspicion that helping me will prevent me from growing. And so it's really stressful. The the really frustrating thing is that that whole expectation has abated from them since I became a taxpayer and I have a respectable income. Mm-hmm. And so it means that their values like are quite like non-complicated. And this entire time when I was growing up, if I had just brought home the bread, I might have been a happier person. Do you think so? No, I don't think that actually, but I'm just annoyed with my parents that like it's that simple. It's really interesting because I think my parents almost judged me so little about my productivity after a certain age that I had to find new like I remember when I was in school, it, they were very much like you need to get good marks, you need to get good grades in order to have a good job because your life is going to be expensive because you're disabled. And I ascribed to that pretty readily. And so I was a good student. I worked hard. I got good grades. And then I went to university and I didn't get a job right away. And I remember feeling really inadequate in the projection of what I thought my parents saw me as. And then I remember one conversation a little while later where I started to get a good job, started making good money, told my parents about it. And they were like, okay, but are you having fun? Are you like enjoying your time? And I was like, what? In my mind, I was like, that's what you want me to be doing? Yeah, see, my the end of my first year, I was horrifically homesick and I wanted to come home. And they were like, aren't you going to get a job on campus in the summer? I was like, oh, okay. And so I did. That's bizarre. I was depressed the whole summer until my friend Steve came to stay with me in August and it was just like it was the best I'm still grateful to him for that trip he doesn't even remember it anymore because it was 13 years ago but I remember it vividly because of the relief the relief that I got when I saw that motherfucker every day strutting around the Carlton cafeteria and making jokes about like how goofy I am and how much I take my work life too seriously and I should (laughs) 
take my scooter to Babylon nightclub and to Newton's and try to start living it up because I fucking live in Ottawa for Christ's sake. So he very much lifted a significant depression that I had back then. And I, I was super ang- like frustrated with my parents because for my undergrad, I, I was never able to spend a summer at home. Yeah. But then of course, after a while you like, it became Ottawa became home and then it didn't feel very good being here where I am now because that's where I learned to function. And also that's where I found my sea legs. And so it worked like the tough love obviously worked, but it's still like the, the, um, the shoulds that I have in my brain that quite often push me to succeed in ways that other people in my situation might not. They also, have poisoned many relationships that I've had with people, with other wheelies, like in, in my 20s. Yeah. I wasn't a very good person in some dimensions. Yeah, I find myself judging other people for like a lack of motivation without, without fully appreciating the amount of work it might take them to do what in my mind they should be doing. But and then like the whole irony of the whole thing is that like when you're a kid, like some part of you just wants to wants to do well and like eschew that feeling of failure. Like we want to exceed by some like aspiration of 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 a person or a figure that we hold in high regard. Yeah. Like we, we want to be the next um, successful developer of video games or of like social media software or whatever people we hold in high esteem. But then when you actually enter the workforce, you sort of start to, you start to realize that so, so often the people higher up on the hierarchy of power at an organization are just playing politics and they don't actually care about your deliverable. Or, or that's not their primary interest, and they're, yeah. they're, they can be they can be pariahs. And then so this whole this whole thing you had when you were a kid of your authority figures, your teachers, your coaches, your parents, your friends, the higher standard that they held you to might have actually meant something because they had your better interest at heart, and you know, like you were actively learning, or maybe you weren't. I don't know. I had a a, a pretty positive learning experience growing up in public school and whatnot and any any recreational activities that I had. I had some wonderful teachers, people I respected deeply, and I aspired to to succeed in, in their courses because of that sense of respect and um, and community and whatever. But then you go into the workplace and it's like you don't trust that the the people who ostensibly have authority over you like really know what it is that they're doing. And then your whole notion of productivity goes askew because you're like, well, do I really want to help this place do what they do? Like, yeah. Does it actually mean something? And then it circles back to that whole work. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. I guess the, the burden of, of asking yourself of whether you are a meaningful contributor to your community like you have to come up with your own definition of productivity and live by that. Exactly. That's what I realized when my parents said to me, well, are you having a good time? I realized I had constructed this idea of my own value system based on a projection that wasn't even mine and wasn't even true. 
And then I realized I needed to find things that I cared about that I actually wanted to do. Yeah. And those were the things I had to drive myself towards. That was the compass that I had to use to guide me. I remember, yeah. you know, so often growing up, one of the like simple throwaway questions teachers would ask you when they wanted you to write a paper was yeah. talk about your role model. And I never had one. I always just said my dad because like I looked up to him. I look up to him still. I just, I, I felt like I was able to connect with him more readily than like a celebrity or an actor or a politician or something. Yeah. And so I always just said my dad. And then when he said that, I realized that like, like a role model should basically not be the things you're doing, but it should be the values that guide you towards those things. Yeah. Well, I think we've been like kind of exploring that more and more in our popular culture nowadays, because it's more and more important that people articulate their values and figure out how they feel about things. Yeah. Because that seems to be more and more the measure of a public figure than anything else. And maybe that's a good thing because it seems to me that the people that we choose to celebrate are quite flawed. Well, I think the other thing to remember is everyone is flawed. <laughs> and it's just like, are they flawed in a way that you can connect with them and relate to them and appreciate what they're trying to do? Or are they flawed in a way that feels too disconnected from the value system that you ascribe to? Yeah. I don't think there's anyone that isn't flawed. Mm -hmm. Do you think the movie we watched today was flawed? I love the movie that we watched today. What movie did we watch? We watched um, a 1954 Alfred Hitchcock film called Rear Window. Can you say it three times quickly? I don't think I can say it one time quickly. Rear window, rear window, rear window, rear window. We are, we are, we are selling seashells by the seashore. We are window. <laughs> There's a 30 Rock joke where <laughs> this like one character is, an, is a TV actress who's trying to make it big. And her first Hollywood movie is called The Rural Juror. <laughs> and no one has the heart to tell her that that's the worst title in the world. 30 Rock is so underrated. 30 Rock is very, very underrated. And in fact, quite a few Tina Fey TV shows sort of fly under the radar. Yeah, Tina Fey is a legend. But unfortunately, we didn't watch 30 Rock for today's episode. <laughs> you didn't like Rear Window, right, Tony? What makes you say that? Because you didn't say anything throughout the film. And at some points, I suspected that you were sleeping. When we were watching this, I needed an eye speculum to hold my eyelids open. I got that sense from you, and I was really sad. It, it wasn't even that I thought it was a bad movie, though. I was just insanely tired, and the movie was insanely slow. So it was hard to stay motivated to keep my eyelids open. I don't know if I would call it slow by 1954 standards. It was, after all, a thriller. I wasn't watching it by 1954 standards. <laughs> it's 2021. Yeah, well, I mean, that's true. I wasn't like wearing a top hat, wearing a trench coat, being like, is this a good movie? Drinking a bottle of Coke out of a glass bottle. <laughs> the men in 1954 didn't wear top hats and trench coats. They were stylish. They wore top hats and trench coats. Don Draper was only six years 
older than this movie. He wears top hats and trench coats. N- top hats? Or like fedoras at least. Well, like, you know, sensible downtown Manhattan fedoras. Not a fedora that you could get away with wearing now. Okay, fine. But oh, okay, fine. This is not about Rear Window at all. Please tell me what Rear Window was about because I think you should do the plot, plot synopsis because obviously you were keenly awake throughout the film. Yeah, I remember all the details. <laughs> it's about a window at the back of a place. Okay. That's all I remember. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> a guy was a photojournalist mm-hmm. and always trying to up the ante, get the best photo. And he got a photo, I guess. All of this is implied through exposition that he got a photo from the middle of a racetrack and like got hit or somehow got entangled in an accident and broke a leg. Mm -hmm. So then he was in a wheelchair, in a manual wheelchair, a very 1954 wheelchair, Uh stuck in his inaccessible apartment Uh because it literally had stairs to get out. And spent his life voyeuristically watching everyone live their life through their windows out of his window. Eventually, I say eventually because (laughs) we got about 30 minutes into the movie and I was like, is this a thriller? (laughs) Because nothing was happening. You thought it was a snoozer? It was so, the first 30 minutes was just like, trying to remind you and set up the characters and tell you that the guy in a wheelchair is kind of a misogynist asshole. Yeah. In 1954, like a character being kind of a misogynist asshole is also the hero. Yeah. Well, he also sounded a bit like Bane. No, he sounds like Stuart McLean from CBC News. Maybe, but he had a bit of Bane going on. Bane. Like a little bit. He has like a bit of goofy going on. He's play- the main character is played by Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. He sounds like, like uh, <laughs> or like Sean Connery without a speech impediment. <laughs> I can't do impressions with headphones on because I can't hear my own fucking voice. I do the one headphone on, one headphone off. By the way, this guy doesn't spend his life like stuck in his apartment watching his neighbors. He spends his period healing like in his cast, which is around only six weeks or so, studying his neighbors because he's bored. He becomes studying. Yeah, because in 1954, there's no Instagram and Facebook. He can't creep people on on a social media app. So he creeps them with binoculars out his fucking window. How's that different from the present moment, Tony? At least on Instagram, the implication is people are publicly posting these pictures for consumption, but he was viewing people in their private homes. And I guess the argument is, well, they didn't close the window, but he also was using binoculars. Yeah, but that's true. He was. If you found out someone was looking into your house, watching (laughs) you play video games, you wouldn't be as upset as if you found out he was looking in your house, watching you play video games through binoculars. Right. That's a good point. Because, yeah, like he might accidentally catch me playing video games with his eyes, but with binoculars, like he's actively hoping that I'm playing Fortnite in my underwear. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like me to start like blathering on and on about this movie? Yeah, blather away. Okay. 
Can't wait, can we? Did you actually think it wasn't a slow movie? Okay, you watch Mad Men, do you not? Yeah. Is not a key feature of that series, like, a rather glacial pace? Yeah, but I don't really just watch that. Like, I put Mad Men on in the background while I'm doing something because I don't have to pay attention to keep up. But do you ever give your undivided attention to the slower moments of that series? Yeah, and I know what you're doing, but it didn't really translate to Rear Window. Because <laughs> with Mad Men, I don't know, there's something about it that I'm more invested in the story and the characters and Peggy. And I, I'm kind of curious how ad agencies work. That's uh-huh. actually a big part of why I started watching it was because at my current job, they asked me to take over some of the marketing stuff. And I was like, I don't know what that means. And I was like, that's a good excuse to rewatch Mad Men. And it's, it's fascinating. But with Rear Window, I don't know. I wasn't invested in what's he going to find out about his neighbors today. And did any part of the disabled element of the film resonate with you? Near the end, but I don't want to get to it until you... I don't know if you... Did you want to go over, like, the thriller parts of it? Well, there are several things that I would like to go over, but I don't want to inundate you with them. Well, I'm prepared to be inundated. Okay. Something that I love... Okay, that's too much. <laughs> I I know I'm starting to look down, so I'm no longer talking to you. So, but yeah, I'm going to look right at that. you. <laughs> I'm going to look right at you while I do this. So Thank you. Remember, remember earlier we were talking... Contest, what do you think? Okay. Earlier we were talking about productivity... And about succeeding in school and in healthy environments where I felt valued versus the workplace or not strictly the workplace, mm-hmm. but adult life where it, that isn't always the case, where you have role models and you have people to help you along. Yeah. Rear Window was part of the syllabus for my second year film course at Carleton. Okay. And like, I absolutely love that elective. I took five years to do my undergrad and I spent most of it doing extra math courses so I could get like an extra qualification on my degree. And so the one time where I got to take a real elective and have fun, it was a a class like a first year film class. And so obviously Hitchcock is part of it. And like Ingmar Bergman and uh, Orson Welles, what things may come, Alien, you know, Ridley Scott, blah, blah, blah. All these like basically big film directors and big seminal movies. Uh, So all I'm trying to say is that I may be compelled to appreciate this movie because it would make me a good little student or a good boy. And so maybe you should take my reception of this film with a grain of salt, admittedly. Yeah, but I feel that way about every movie we watch together. Like we've talked about how... Not every movie. You liked Coda. No, I'm not saying that I dislike movies. I'm saying that I always expect that you're going to be looking at it through a more academic, like a deeper lens than me. You can say pretentious. I'm usually just watching it. Do I like the movie? How do I feel when I'm watching it? And you're watching it like, is this a good movie? How should you feel when you're watching it? Oh, should. That's an interesting word. Maybe you don't have to agree. I don't, maybe that's not even fair to say. But I think that you're, at the very least, you analyze movies on a much deeper level than I ever could. No, don't say could. I just love them. Yeah. 
I yeah, I think you do, and that's good. That's why this is a good dynamic. I think. Okay, so first thing that I really like about Rear Window is the set. Oh, actually, sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but like, I actually did have something to say about this. Okay, which is uncommon. Okay, um, it felt like a play to me. Yeah, it. For some reason, it had a very, maybe because it was such a small set, uh-huh. but the way it was shot and like the fades and the way the scenes were long and drawn out, but nothing really happened. It <laughs> felt like I was at a play. It felt like live theater, eh? Yeah, because I don't know. There, I don't even know how to put my finger on it. I'm sure you will and you do. Yeah. But the the pacing and the script... And the lighting, everything about it felt like they just took live theater and recorded it. Whereas movies today feel, well, not all of them, but the movies that I generally am drawn to feel a lot more vast in the world that they create. And I think that might have been part of why I got bored was because like, I just got too familiar with his apartment that i was just like yeah okay i live here and i don't want to oh you felt like you were living you were there with him and stuck there with him the whole movie was shot from his apartment yes which was very cool yeah i don't think there's a scene without jimmy stewart um no i don't think so (laughs) fucking bane um so i think that's like an exercise in empathy for the character though to center the film in his apartment and to give you a constant sense of his isolation. I didn't really empathize with him, though. I kind of thought he was a jerk. Okay. Well, he, he was a jerk, actually. Um, so I do agree with that. But I do like that there was a movie told about a disabled person that wasn't necessarily unrealistic about their ability to gain access to the world in 1954. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that it it, it was a thriller... And that, like, it, it told an effective narrative within that confined space. Yes. And it, it, there's, there's, there's something paradoxical about it as well, because, like, the way that it's staged, like, you spend about half the time in the room with Jimmy Stewart and his, his attendant, the woman who makes him lunch and rubs his back and does his stretches. Yeah, his insurance nurse. His insurance nurse, um, who is quite amusing and smart and she has a lot of banter with him she's the kind of person who like if she was my attendant i would i would always enjoy the time we spent together and then when she left i would just exhale that's true yeah it would take a lot out of you but it wouldn't necessarily feel like a non-worthwhile expenditure of energy exactly but um and there's actually a line that she says about about the fact that he's staring out the fucking window all the time that I kind of wanted to play just to set the tone for the movie. The New York State sentence for a peeping Tom is six months in the workhouse. Oh, hello, Scott. They got no windows in the workhouse. You know, in the old days, they used to put your eyes out with a red-hot poker. Any of those bikini bombshells you're always watching worth a red-hot poker? Oh, dear. We become a race of peeping Toms. What people ought to do is get outside their own house and look in for a change. Yes, sir. 
How's that for a bit of homespun philosophy? Reader's Digest, April 1939. Well, I only quote from the best. Am I racist, or can you tell a movie's age by how they speak? You can, yeah. There's a cadence and a rhythm to how they speak that might suggest the era that they are from. Just re-listening to that, I was instantly brought back to 1954. Well, I think that's more Jimmy Stewart's effect, because he has this strange folksy drawl and i can't do it like bane <laughs> like bane but you're just gonna you have to admit that he sounds a little bit like bane <laughs> he does yeah you merely adopted the disability i was born with it <laughs> <laughs> you were in that clip first of all you get a sense for her opinion of jimmy ford sitting around like loitering around all day watching people from his apartment but she's also sort of stating like one of the main themes of the movie, which I think is still salient today because like he, he does like all go at the, the, the women across the way from him who dance and flounder around in skimpy clothing. It did have pretty uh, sexual overtones. Oh my God. There are scenes where uh, one young woman in her early twenties, and I think Jimmy's like approaching 50 Probably, unless men in nineteen in the fifties looked a little bit more rugged. She could have been early thirties. She might have been, but there are points where she full on like bends over and does splits. Yeah. Like it, it was, you know, pornographic. Every time she was on screen, she was doing some kind of like suggestive dance routine. Yeah, she may as well just have had two index fingers directed at her nipples. Like it was <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot. I would have loved to see that. <laughs> but um, you'll notice in the clip, like, uh, you hear the sound of a piano, which is actually not coming from Jimmy's apartment. It's ambient noise coming from the apartment across the way of another resident that Jimmy stares at throughout the day. And then you hear traffic noises from the street adjacent to his cul-de-sac. Like, you may be confined to Jimmy's apartment, but his neighborhood is always in the foreground and the the sense that you end up getting because you're constantly either in there with him or out there watching people is that the the environment of the film is like 360 degrees and like the set the set is all constructed so like they can control all these things and put cameras on dollies and create these like long uncut shots that move from the outside into Jimmy's world or vice versa. And you can watch like his neighbors pull up their uh, Shih Tzu on a, on a lift that they've created so that they can get it out from the apartment building from the third floor. You can watch a lady water her flowers or like kids play, or you see in full view, like the living room of the guy with the grand piano and the nights that he has like drunken and alone and frustrated or like when he has family over like do you have a window in your basement uh like in my garage where you're sitting right now i do i have one like right beside me to my right and two to my left do you ever look out your windows hardly ever do they would you be able to see anything um at night i would and i can usually tell if one of my friends is coming from the far side of the room but you don't ever have like a voyeuristic impulse to look out the windows no 
But if it was 1954 and I couldn't creep people on Facebook, I might look out my windows more often. I know my parents have a tendency to fucking look out the windows all the time and seem to know. I love staring out the window. Yeah. But even not even just to see people like growing up, we had a beautiful view of a river outside our back, our front, like living room window. And I would just sit there and stare at it while I ate breakfast. Should we just tell the stories of us looking out windows for the rest of the episode? Well, I'm just trying to figure out how much you relate to this guy's voyeurism. It's not the voyeurism that I like. It's it's the it's the fact that the the, the movie is very confined and yet it feels incredibly open. And yeah. at it, at any second, the camera can cut from Jimmy over to the apartment of one of its neighbors, and then you'll get like a one or two minute vignette of of their day, really, and yeah. like. There are there are uh, scenes that cut to a feuding couple, and they'll be in the same room one moment, and then it'll it'll zoom out to two windows, and the husband will be in one, and the wife in the other, and suddenly they're boxed into their own respective worlds. Or yeah, the staging in this movie was fantastic. Yeah, like how they got how they were able to convey like the scope of a living space inside of one window and have it like be a portrait of a character. And then so throughout the film you become, because Jimmy is an audience much like we are an audience. And to be honest with you, I feel like a lot of disability is like being an audience to the lives of others. I relate a hundred percent to that. Yeah. I live vicariously through or I lived vicariously through my friends for years and years. Yeah. And then like in adulthood, I've lost touch with a, a lot of them. And there's this like weird dimension to my life that has, that has been slightly diminished because I can't live through them anymore. hundred percent. Sometimes I feel like I almost don't want to hear anymore what my friends are doing because I just get sad and jealous. <laughs> I'll be like, really? Another baby? That's amazing. <laughs> Good for you, but also fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever live vicariously through your disabled friends? Oh. <laughs> yeah, I live through you. You fucking go like to you go on uh camping trips all the time and when I when I know you're out there, I get this like weird desire to like call you to like I wanna like see you and your friends like out in that environment. Cause that's just cool to me. Do you think any part of it is like just to see how me or another one of your disabled friends is coping in that environment to oh. see if you can project or visualize a world where you could do it? Yeah, probably. Like if I see you living it up in a cabin, I'm, I'm going to be like, yeah, I want to do that too. Yeah. That's what I do too. I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, I don't feel that much more disabled than them. I think I could function the same way they're doing it. So now I want to go. I want you to come with us to a cottage. That'd be sick. Yeah, I would. I should. I'm going this weekend. So that part of the, the movie, like, I really connected with. And it's deep, like, in the themes of the film. Yeah. You know what part I connected with the most? Sort of fast forwarding. I guess we can just run through the thriller part of it. Basically, uh, Jimmy Stewart, Bane, realizes that (laughs) there's a good chance one of his neighbors has killed his wife. And he's like piecing it all together, becoming increasingly indulgent in his voyeurism. 
um, under the guise of solving the crime. Yeah. And like trying to pull his nurse and his partner and his friend into it to try to like get everyone on board and help solve this crime. I related a little bit to the fact that he wanted to do something, aka solve the crime, but he couldn't do it alone. So he almost had to like rally his social circle to get them to help him. And when they weren't as on board as he was, he had to kind of put himself into second gear and force that interest and intrigue and sort of instill that in them to get them as on board. And I relate to that when like, you know, I have a project that I'm really excited about and it could be as simple as just like opening a new device and setting it up. But I have to like get the person that's about to help me as excited about this new device as I am so that Uh I don't feel like I'm slave driving them into helping me. Yeah, I want them to be as excited. I remember getting Jeff to help me set up my lights, my colored lights. Uh And he was just as into it as I was. And it Uh was so awesome because I didn't feel like I had to like use him. Like he, he was just as much living vicariously through the fact that we got to try out these new lights. Yeah. So I related to him doing that. Then the other part that I related to even more, which is maybe a bit sadder, I realize. <laughs> yeah. But Jimmy Stewart Bain was uh-huh. watching this man potentially murdering his wife. And eventually his partner, I don't know, like girlfriend, fiance or something, goes over to try to investigate. And then the man comes home and there's like a physical struggle between the man and his partner. And he's sitting there absolutely helpless. Uh And that part, for whatever reason, for pretty obvious reasons, cut right to me. Oh, man. Just watching him sit there being like, what do we do? I can't do anything. How am I going to help? So you mean this specifically resonated with you from like the perspective of having a girlfriend be in harm's way or having a friend or yeah, not a girlfriend necessarily, not even a friend, just like someone I'm close to. Like, for example, growing up in foster care, there were physically abusive kids living in our house Oh, and watching them like attack my parents. Oh no. And just sitting there absolutely helpless. Yeah. No shit was devastating and i don't know if that's specifically when i was relating it back to but there are definitely moments where i've felt helpless or insecurities where i've projected a future feeling of helplessness like (laughs) like with dating someone and being like i hope nothing bad happens in this situation because i wouldn't be able to do anything to help them you know what i mean yeah so that bubbled up. That I mean, obviously, that's that's a whole other can of worms. Which is like, how do you exude positive masculine values <laughs> as a, as a disabled man? Yeah, um, I'm trying to be masculine without being toxically masculine, but I feel like the masculinity of my situation, I have to like 
almost overcompensate in certain ways. Yeah. Or at least overcompensate in different ways, like like project a feeling of confidence or or security in some other sense so that yeah. I can be lacking in quote like physical masculinity. Well, yeah, like I, I felt that before with partners, like where I think they unconsciously wanted me to be in control of particular situations where traditionally like a boyfriend would. Yeah. And maybe I couldn't do that because I don't know, there are several things I just can't do. And sometimes you do kind of feel helpless. Like your girlfriend's like, why aren't you walking right now? <laughs> yeah. I can't think of a specific example, really, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I don't really even know if we're talking about gender roles or just, you know, people being supportive of each other. And sometimes there's a physical component. I don't I don't think it's gender roles because I, I think people that females in wheelchairs also must feel yeah. a sense of like it, physical inadequacy that they have to compensate for in other ways. For sure, for sure. And so, yeah, like I, sometimes I felt like, well, all I can really do is care about her really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I was like, oh, all I have to do is pay for everything. And then I realized that that's like not helpful because, you know, that makes you look bad in other ways. For sure, for sure. I had a, a desire to pay for some things and in retrospect, it like... Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of a specific example, but I don't really want to dive in too much. Um, I remember many examples where even in the moment, I was like, this is too much. And yeah. then doing it anyway, being like, yeah, but I can't lift things. So I have to do this. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've certainly had that thought. Yeah. Like I should, I should pay for the, for her first vehicle or I should pay tuition. I think one of the best lessons I learned was from an early relationship where I was feeling those insecurities. And I remember I used to do this thing where kind of as a joke, but not really. Anytime I was asking like, hey, are you still hungry? And she'd be like, no, I'm good. And I'd be like, are you sure? And she'd be like, no, I'm good. And I'd be like, are you sure? And I'd like, every time I'd ask, are you sure? I'd like ask it in an increasingly like goofy way. But realistically, what I was doing was like purely out of insecurity, asking over and over again. And she eventually was like, you know, you can ask me once and I'll tell you, and then you don't have to ask me again. And it hurt in the moment, but almost immediately I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like, (laughs) I'm trying so hard to make you feel like, you know, taken care of. That it's yeah. like overwhelming and just going to push you away. Yeah. I mean, the specific examples I can think of in this conversation, like they weren't, it wasn't a toxic relationship. It was just like mostly in my head too. It's like, yeah. where does my sense of obligation begin? And how much do I really need to overcompensate? Sometimes that's not clear. Well, sometimes the answer is you don't have to. Like yeah. realistically, the more I've learned, the more relationships I've been in, they should already know by the time you're dating what you're offering. Yeah. That's not going to change. So you don't have to offer more to make up for the things that you're lacking because 
they don't consider you to be lacking in those areas. Yeah, that's true. Or it should be true. <laughs> yeah, it's not always true. It depends on how healthy the relationship is. Um, getting back to the movie. Yeah. What disability part did you relate to the most? I think that that what, what I was talking about before, living vicariously. Yeah. And just also like hit the sheer number of things that he's able to do from his apartment. Like he sort of does actively engage in a full-on investigation of this situation. And of course he does enlist the women in his life. And a friend, a male friend. Well, he does have a male friend, but that guy doesn't really quite believe him that yeah. this is actually happening, you know, that his neighbor murdered murdered his wife. So it's actually the women who believe him. And I have a couple of things to say about that as well. But so just like trying to function in a limited space is something I think also the movie does well. The other thing that I sort of liked is that it doesn't, the movie doesn't make a big deal of the fact that he's in these casts. Like, yes, Jimmy Stewart's disability is short term, but if they do pity him, it's only for a moment. And he still has the same amount of purchase he would have were he not in casts, like with his girlfriend and with his caretaker and with his army buddy slash police officer that helps throughout the investigation. So I liked a lot of how disability is handled in this movie, to be honest. Should I get into some subtext? Yeah, I think we're probably on the same page about the women in this movie, but I'm curious what you have to say. Well, I think the disability in this film is a metaphor um, for like impending change. Yeah. The burden or the supposed burden of a traditional 1950s male toward a committed relationship. Yeah, we should say that sort of near the beginning of the movie, Jimmy Stewart Bain is talking to his wife. Or sorry, not his wife, his, his nurse, basically going over how perfect his relationship is to the point where he could never possibly marry her. And he's like so afraid of that commitment that he even tries to push her away. Yeah, he actively antagonizes by the way, uh Jimmy Stewart's wife is yeah. played by um is played by what's her name? Grace Kelly, who is what Betty Draper like is Betty Draper's image is modeled after Grace Kelly. And I was stunned by how like good of an actress she was. She's enchanting. Oh my god. Like I was it's so uh, magnetic. I was fucking smitten, Tony. Like, yeah. I don't mean to reduce this film to, like, you know, to that. Everything that they wanted you to? Yeah. I mean, I'm a fucking human, and she's gorgeous. No, she's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, totally. And I, like, it made me wish that she was in Mad Men. Because, I mean, you know, January Jones actually is perfect for, I'm not going to get into that. She's. Stop it. Yep. But anyway, I I totally understand why Grace Kelly was like... We can cover Mad Men. There's that one scene where the guy's foot gets run over by a lawnmower. (laughs) Tony, please let us cover that episode. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 
It's my birthday gift to you. <laughs> yeah. There, actually, I have a clip of uh, Grace Kelly imploring Jimmy to uh, consider a new career path. Someday you may want to open up a studio of your own here. Well, uh, how would I run it from, say, uh, Pakistan? Jeff, isn't it time you came home? You could pick your assignment. Well, I wish there was one I wanted. Make the one you want. You mean leave the magazine? Yes. For what? For yourself and me. I could get you a dozen assignments tomorrow. Fashions, portraits. When I don't laugh, I could do it. Well, that's what I'm afraid of. Can you see me driving down to the fashion salon in a Jeep, wearing combat boots and a three-day beard? Wouldn't that make a hit? Well, I could see you looking very handsome and successful in a dark blue flannel suit. Now, uh, let's stop talking nonsense, shall we? Hmm? Guess I'd better start setting up for dinner. You hear that? He shuts her down and she just goes to the kitchen. What the fuck? So, <laughs> we need to stop talking. But, uh... Goodbye to your basic human function as a woman. <laughs> but, yeah, like, one thing I... I uh, so, in that scene, like, you can tell that uh, Grace Kelly, like, has purchase in their in their social circle in in their city and she can help uh jimmy get a job like in the city that would allow him to settle down and stop getting himself in situations where he he could break his fucking leg and she's perfectly willing to do that for him and i actually think that this movie respects its it respects its female characters to some extent because a majority of the dialogue between stewart uh, and other characters is 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 with the women, so th- they have full on fleshed out conversations in which he is a pig headed jackass, but they are still they still make compelling points they still put him in his place like Grace Kelly uses her quote unquote feminine intuition to talk about the behavior of the of the murdered wife um she like uses deduction and she takes charge. Jewelry psychology. <laughs> Jewelry psychology and stuff. So the point that I'm trying to make is that they matter more, almost more than the Jimmy Stewart character. Um, and the his arc is in sort of slowly uh, coming to the realization that he has so much in common with his wife and that he loves her. <laughs> They have the same like tenacity to get the story and to take chances like for the sake of their occupation and stuff. Um, so there's some really cool interplay going on. And the, the, like when they're fighting and things get heated, he does tell her to shut up repeatedly, you know, and there's a line where his uh, police officer friend says that he doesn't believe in feminine intuition. In fact, there's a clip that I got of that. That might have been a woman, but it couldn't have been Mrs. Thorwald. That jewelry... Look, Miss Fremont, that uh, feminine intuition stuff sells magazines, but in real life, it's still a fairy tale. I don't know how many wasted years I've spent tracking down leads based on female intuition. All right. Yeah, so it's gross. Like, it, it is openly gross. At the same time... 1954. 
1954. And Grace Kelly does prove to be right. You know, like it, it does, in fact, turn out that the neighbor murdered his wife. And she is the one who effectively finds the evidence that seals the case. So obviously the movie respects her. What was the evidence that sealed the case? Oh, the wedding ring. The wedding ring, yeah. She found the wife's wedding ring. And obviously in the nineteen in nineteen in, in the nineteen fifties, if a woman is not wearing her wedding ring She's dead. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Because there is no divorce. And no married woman would ever take her ring off. Um, there's another clip I have there that I liked. Yeah, it was. What are you going to do if one of them catches you? Yeah, it depends which one. No, Miss Torso, for example. You keep your mind off her. Well, she sure is the eat, drink, and be merry girl. Yeah, she'll wind up fat, alcoholic, and miserable. Yeah. Speaking of misery, but poor Miss Lonely Heart, she drank herself to sleep again, alone. Poor soul. Oh, well. Maybe one day she'll find her happiness. Well, some man will lose his. Isn't there anybody in the neighborhood could cast an eye in her direction? So in that clip, it's uh, Jimmy Stewart and his attendant are there gossiping about the neighbors. Um, and there's this kind of funny suggestion in the film that Jimmy Stewart's disability and his isolation has feminized him to some extent uh, to where he becomes invested in gossip, which is notoriously a feminine occupation. Do you feel emasculated by your disability? It depends on the day. So you have felt emasculated? For sure. Can you give more context? It hasn't, like, it's never like the women in my life who, like, make me feel like less of a man. It's more like the, the, the exercise we were doing earlier where we were afraid ourselves that we couldn't, you know, play the role of a boyfriend yeah. properly. That's just where it kind of happens. It's an interesting thought. I don't know if it's completely toxic that he's thinking or implying that his disability makes him feel more feminine. I think the movie's implying that. Like, I think the movie's implying that he wouldn't be um, spending so much time with the women in his life were he not disabled. No, and I agree with you, but I don't know if that's necessarily a bad implication, like an untrue or inaccurate implication. Um, I, I guess it's being quite pro- progressive in some way because it's saying that disability gave Jimmy Stewart the opportunity to find common ground with the ladies in his life hmm. and to de-trivialize like an activity that he otherwise would dismiss, which is like a kind of emotional investment in the daily affairs of his fucking neighbors. I, again, though, I kind of relate to that. Like, I always, my only tool to connect with people was emotional. Like, I was never able to toss a Frisbee around at the boys, you know? Yeah. So the only way to connect was to be like, how are you doing? Let's talk about that. Oh, yeah. And I would always, like, whenever attendants came to see me, I would fucking have marathon conversations with them if I knew that they were partial to that. I would definitely always want to talk the ear off my caretakers. Yeah. And I guess I can't, like, I I try not as much as possible to participate in an attendant-fueled grapevine, but... You can't avoid it either. You can't avoid it. And this movie is is relatable for some fucking reason. Yeah. But it's also the women in the film who believe Jimmy Stewart all throughout his, his investigation. They don't call him... 
paranoid or tell him to fucking get his cast off as quickly as possible, which is what his army buddy says to him repeatedly. And by the end of the film, there's like, uh, I forget how exactly. Oh, right. Uh, Jimmy's neighbor, the killer catches on to him and tries to attack him. And they have a scuffle and he gets pushed out of a window and has a kind of like hard, soft landing on a pair of cops that catch him on the way down. So what happens is he gets a cast on his second leg because it's implied that he broke his second leg in the fall. And like the the next scene, uh, Jimmy has reconciled with his wife because they solve the case together and they realize that they think alike on a lot of things. And he respects her agency and he's super proud of her. And so he has two casts on and there's like this shot of Grace Kelly looking super content because she knows that she has like him. She has his heart in his mind. And she has him locked in for another six weeks. Yeah, she knows he can't fucking go anywhere. Which, I mean, the implication there is obviously quite sinister. She shouldn't wish that her husband is further disabled. But as that metaphor of, of the disability being the thing that humbles him, that feminizes him slightly, that gets him used to the idea that he might have to give up some of the de- of the destructive elements of his masculinity and finally acknowledge that he fucking loves Grace Kelly, which, by the way, shouldn't be a hard thing to fucking admit. I sort of looked at this movie and I thought it was quite progressive. Yeah, so... This movie, for some reason, maybe because it was the 50s, the subtext was a bit easier to pull out. I was actually able to see a lot of this subtext where normally I'm not. Mm. And I felt a lot of the same things. The movie felt inspired, and I think it was it had its heart in the right place. The uh-huh. only issues I had with it were the pacing at the beginning and... Uh-huh. Again, like you said, that's sort of a product of when it came out more so than, and, and and because I'm like, I was trying to think, was this the oldest movie I've ever seen? And besides The Wizard of Oz, it might be the oldest movie I've ever seen. Wow. That we should try to rectify that. We should try to find more like silver screen wheelie movies. But yeah, I'm curious what those movies are trying to say about wheelies because just naturally has to be a simpler or at the very least a different but probably less nuanced perspective of disability. I have to say this is somewhat controversial, but it is fascinating to watch a film in which a character's biases or their prejudices are not hidden or not veiled or merely suggested at. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to get away with the chauvinistic stuff that he was saying nowadays. No. Without the movie just being toned up. Nor would you be able to get away with um, uh, with Grace Kelly's broader analysis of the motivations of women and their relationship with their jewelry. Right. Which felt very shallow listening to it. Yeah. Some of it, some of it is cringe, but... I don't know. The fact that it's there just means the movie's not going to lie to you, I guess. Like, when did The Wizard of Oz come out? Like, 1930-something? 40? I don't know. I forget. I think it was the 30s. Yeah. 
just like the skill again in the vin- in the silent vignettes of Jimmy Stewart's neighbors is just so masterful. It's like each apartment window is this diorama. It's like kind of Wes Anderson-y in its like stylistic execution, but it's also much subtler. And like the just the composition, I ca- I can't imagine what went into it. And then you sort of balance that like these completely silent, no dialogue uh, sort of scenes in the life of these people with the longer form, full discussions between Jimmy Stewart and his girlfriend. And you get like, you get satiated on all accounts. Like you get a full portrait of a relationship. You get a full sense of a tiny community within the apartment complex. Like it's, it's a masterful movie from a technical standpoint. It was one of those movies where I don't think I would have chosen to watch it if not for this context. Mm -hmm. But it gave me a greater appreciation for the evolution of cinema. And there's not an appreciation in the sense that I appreciate movies more now, an appreciation in the sense that it was really interesting to see how movies were thought of differently then. And it might not even just be the time. It could be, you know, Alfred Hitchcock or some other factors. Mm -hmm. But it did make me wonder, maybe because I'm so simple-minded with movies, it was, there were, I got things out of this movie that I don't really pull out of other movies that we watch. Because of the clarity of its in, of its intentions, yeah, and 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 its use of a visual medium in order to convey those intentions, yeah. Like in spite of it being slow, it's an incredibly visual film. Well, I didn't like the plot was pretty benign. I didn't have to think much about that, so yeah. I guess I was able to use more mental cycles to think about the subtext. Uh huh. That was interesting. Whereas usually movies I watch. I'm I'm just thinking of, I remember as a kid, I was so bad at following movies. I felt so stupid because there were so many times where I'd be like halfway through a movie and still not know who's on screen. Like I'd be like, who is this person? Have we already met them? Why are they talking? And I, I feel like I've, I missed everything. I was always envious of my mother's ability to predict what was going to happen next. And they always had like such a, uh, an inner ledger of like actors and their names and roles. And I feel I felt like I needed to catch up. Interesting. Yeah, my parents. I don't think I even learned who like Brad Pitt was till I moved to university. <laughs> started watching movies on my own. Yeah, and then I started hanging out with a pretentious crowd in university. And if you hadn't watched like at least a dozen Werner Herzog films, like they wouldn't <laughs> even look at you. Yeah, they would push my chair into a ditch and cackle in their tight jeans and their non-prescription glasses yeah i still hang out with those people but i still don't know those movies (laughs) they've made an exception for you because you're cool can you use your theramouth device to hold your eyelids open for the next like old movie that we watch that's a great question yeah i'll try we should probably at some point maybe consider frankenstein like several versions of frankenstein that's very true We've been getting a few more listener suggestions too, but I haven't looked at the ages on those movies. Mm. But yeah, I think we should make a more conscious effort to diversify 
how far back we go in movies. What's the oldest movie you've ever seen? Um, There's a film called Things to Come. It's like a 1938 uh, science fiction film. I think that's only like a year before Wizard of Oz. Yeah. We need our friend Michael on here to spit some knowledge on movies before 1940. Our producer, Michael, will definitely listen to this. And when he does, Michael, give us some... uh, Give us some old movies we should watch. Should we wrap it up? How would you like to wrap it up? Uh, I don't know. My creative brain has numbed. I'm have any ideas? Sorry, I don't mean to defer this on to you. I think the best way to wrap it up is simply to say to everyone. Mm-hmm.